0: Everything in your life that is bad is because of two things. There are only two things that make your life painful and difficult. There are only two things that keep you from having total peace and joy and happiness in life. Those two things are sin and death. Every single pain from the smallest irritation of boredom, to heart-wrenching loss of the death of a loved one. All pain, all sorrow, all trial, all tribulation, everything that subtracts from your joy and happiness, is because of only two things: sin and death. I'll demonstrate it for a little bit. How about how about boredom? How it how can the very subtle pain of boredom come from sin and death? It's because if, if you're bored. Well, there's really nothing to be bored of. If you here are a human on earth you are an image bearer of the infinite God and he has made you to know him and enjoy him and no matter what's going on in your life you should be able to rejoice in the God of the universe in the many gifts that he's given you. The reason though that we grow bored is because is we're sinful. We don't value him as we ought to. We're not grateful like we ought to. Instead we're Turned inward, and we are focused on small things like excitement and distraction. Of course, this goes all the way to the the big pains of life from uh, serious diseases, that is, your body dying, a toothache, your body dying, relational ills, that you are not loved as you deserve to be loved, that's sin. Everything in your life that you can think of, you can think of it later, it comes from sin and death. And what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5, which you can turn there if you're not there already, is Paul is talking about hope. This is a wonderful section in the Bible because it's all about hope. Paul is telling Christians this is why you can rejoice, this is why you can look into the future with confidence and joy, knowing that your joy will not diminish in the future or be lost but it will increase. Why can you have hope? And we saw a bit of that in verses 1 to 5 two weeks ago, and then verses 6 to to 11 last week. And now Paul takes a turn in verses 12 to 21, and what he's doing is, is instilling hope so deeply by telling us how those two things that cause us all our trouble and sorrow, sin and death, how they are overcome by one man, Jesus Christ. And we can have complete hope and confidence that because of us being in Christ, we will overcome all sin and all death, and therefore we only have total joy awaiting us. So let me go ahead and read verses 12 to 21. We're, this week, only going to look at the bad news, the sad part. You can see your title of the sermon today is Corrupt and Condemned. It's not a really cheery sermon, and it's only verses 12 to 14, but I want to read the whole context so you can see where we will be going uh, in a few weeks when I'm back from my trip. Let me read then verses 12 to 21. so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So though we come back to verses 12 to 14 that are all about How sin and death are in our life. That's what Paul does. He sets the stage, saying all of us have been corrupted and infiltrated and indeed overcome by sin and by death. And he tells us, at least inferentially, what sin is and what death is. And then even more specifically, he tells us why we sin. Why is sin all over the place? Why is every single person that's ever been born drawn irrevocably to selfishness and evil? Why do all of us, despite all of our different backgrounds, why are we all prone to seek our own good? Why are we all prone to do self-destructive things that we know are bad for us and others? And why does every single person in the world die and yet it feels so unnatural? That's what we're going to see this morning. And so, point number one is this. What is sin? Throughout the Bible, and indeed here in this passage, it talks about sin as, you know, most of all, as an action. It is an evil action. But you can see also in these verses that sin is personified. Sin is a thing. There, verse 13, sin does something. It comes into the world like a person. Death spreads, or uh, sorry, death spreads like a disease. And then verse thirteen, sin was in the world. It's like it was existing, living there, and yet then later it's it's not counted. So what is sin? Well, most basically, to sin is to act contrary to God's will. God's will is. Um, the, his express will, what is good. So when we talk about God's will, sometimes people say, Well, I'm wondering what God's will is. What's God's will of which college I should go to? Or what's God's will of what career I should pursue? You can use God's will in that sense, but I'm not using it in that sense right now. I'm talking about God's will of what He says is good and right, what He wants. And to sin is to act contrary to this, to God's good will his declaration of what is right and what is wrong and because God's will not only aligns with goodness it's the very definition of goodness what's good for you what's good for others what's good for the whole world it's defined by what God says it is he's the one who made it he's the one who knows his will is the definition again of goodness and so to act contrary to God's will is to act in evil it's to act against what is good. And thereby it is to harm. To sin is to act against God's will, against goodness. It's to do evil, and it's to bring harm. Maybe to yourself, maybe to others, maybe to God, maybe to the world, maybe to all four of them at once. And uh, I want you to please turn your eyes to uh, to verse 13 and 14, Paul says something interesting about sin. He says that sin was in the world before the law was given. Now, what Paul means by that is by the law being given, he is referring to when God gave the Ten Commandments and other commandments to Moses and Israel and thereby the world at Mount Sinai, okay? So God gave that law that Paul here is talking about at a very definite date in history. It's when, after the Exodus, this is um, about the 1600s B.C., uh, God brought his people out of Egypt, they went into the desert, and at Sinai God gave his people the law. This was the first time that God made it explicitly clear, this is what is right, this is what is wrong. This is what is wrong. And what Paul says here in verse 13 is that sin was in the world even before the law was given. That is, even before God said explicitly this is right and explicitly this is wrong, there still was sin. And what's interesting, Paul says, is that, he says there at the end of verse 13, sin is not counted where there is no law. So that that seems a bit contradictory. What does this mean? Sin was in the world where there wasn't the law, but it wasn't counted. In what sense was it not counted? Well, Paul makes it clear, uh, at least what he doesn't mean by not being counted, in verse 14. Paul says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So, Paul says, uh, there was sin before Moses got the law from God, before it was made clear from God, what is right and wrong. And yet on the other hand, uh, sin is not counted where there is no law. So this sin was of a different sort before God gave the law to Moses. Yet on the other hand, Paul says, this sin was still truly sin. It was sin deserving punishment from God. How do we know that? Because people died. The only reason that anyone ever dies is because of sin, because they are being punished for sin. So what Paul says is that we can infer from all these people dying from the first man up until the explicit law came with Moses, by all of them dying, we see that all of them were truly sinning. All of them were doing things that were deserving of God's punishment. This tells us something about sin. Is that the clearest and harshest sign of sin is when you act contrary to God's express will so Paul says it's, that this sinning was not like the transgression of Adam what was the transgression of Adam well Adam got a very clear command from God he was told do not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden that was an explicit command he knew exactly what is required of him there wasn't really any question about what tree was it are there any exceptions to this rule it was very straightforward don't eat that tree and he broke that rule he sinned. And this sin, it was very clear, harsh, obvious. And in a sense, it's of a different caliber than when the random guy over in uh, Papua New Guinea steals his neighbor's thing. And those sins are very different. Yet they're both sins. They're both evil and they're both deserving of God's punishment. When the guy goes and steals his, his neighbor's thing, his conscience uh, condemns him. He makes excuses for it. He says, yeah, he didn't deserve to have it anyways. Uh, I've had tough luck. Who knows? He makes some excuse (coughs) (coughs) to vindicate himself for taking something that was not his. And so in a sense, it's of a different caliber than when you, who have been raised in church, hear again and again throughout your life from God's very word that you know is from his that is from God you hear again and again that stealing is wrong and yet then you go ahead and you steal anyways Paul is saying these are different kinds they're of different calibers they're not quite the same but still they are all sin they all deserve God's punishment that's the case however much you know about the bible however much you know of what God requires explicitly all of us are selfish all of us are evil all of us all the time willingly do things to others that harm them that take away from them for our own good and that's because sin is not just an action it's not just these uh, yeah, actions we take that are against God's will So you can see you can also think about sin as a principle, as a force even, as Paul does here in verses 12 to 13. Sin is something that controls you, you could think about. It's something that controls all of humanity. It's that it's inside of you. It's like a disease. It's this disease that is inside you that causes you to act against God's standard, even when it's not for your good. You can all think of times that you've sinned and you've thought later, why would I do that? This has just got me in a bunch of trouble now. It would have been far easier if I just did the right thing. Yet you sinned. You couldn't control yourself. That's because you are not a uh, properly functioning human being who always does the right thing. Instead, you have this disease of sin you could think of that is within you. And causes you to act against God, against others, even against yourself. Sin controls us. It destroys us. It is corruption. And therefore, to to be a sinner, as we all are, is to be someone who is consigned to a life of poor and evil decisions. That's what it means that you are a sinner. Your whole life, you're going to make bad choices. You're going to make choices that are going to cause you to feel ashamed later, that are going to cause you to have to apologize to others. It's because you are a sin. You have this thing inside you, but it's really your own self that refuses to obey God, that desires to assert your own autonomy and authority and so you go against God's will, which is perfect and good, which means you do evil, bad things. And that's why you sin. That's question two. It's because you are a sinner. All of us are bored into this world in a state like this, that we are not able not to sin. You can't stop it. All you could do is fight one sin with another sin. There are some people that are... Um, very impulsive, and they indulge every desire and pleasure, and in that way, they, uh, they might not be very arrogant people, and they have nothing to be proud about, because they just indulge every desire, they're lazy, they're selfish, and there are other people who don't do those things, maybe that's some of you, maybe you see yourself as better than others, so I don't do all those hedonistic, selfish things, I don't pursue all those pleasures, instead I'm a good student, and I'm a respectable young man or woman. And if you're not a Christian, all you've done is fight that sin of selfishness and pleasure with a sin of pride. You've just enacted one sin to fight another sin. You haven't actually acted righteously. That's all we can do as sinners before the new birth, before we are made a new creation through the Holy Spirit. And why are we all that way? It's all because of one guy named Adam. Turn in your Bible to the very start, to Genesis chapter three. Um, there's, a, there's a guy in the 18th century named Samuel Johnson. Um, he was famous for among many things. He kind of put the first dictionary together in the English language, and um, He is a very eccentric, funny guy and a Christian, and so there's a famous biography of him. Uh, And There's there's one point in the biography where the biographer asks him, uh, Mr. Johnson, do you believe in original sin? Original sin is this doctrine that we're learning here in uh, Romans chapter 5, that everybody born into the world is a sinner and without God's grace can't do anything but sin. So his biographer, Boswell, asks Mr. Johnson, uh, do you believe in original sin? And what Mr. Johnson says is, all the evidence in the world shouts at us that original sin is true. He says this is the one doctrine in the Bible that no one can contradict. He says, what's my witness? He says, look around the world. Every single society in the world is governed by laws. Every single society in the world has thieves. There's no people that can live without laws. And this testifies that everybody is a sinner. The reason we have to have these laws is because we have to have our selfish, evil impulses controlled by threat of punishment, by threat of death. Original sin in that sense is really irrefutable. And why is that the case? Why are we so messed up like that? It all comes back here to Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 2, You can see the command. God said you can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Of that you shall not eat. And yet here we come to Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. With that in mind, please turn back to Romans chapter five. Now, Paul says something in uh, in verse twelve that might seem a bit contradictory to uh, the Genesis account. Let me ask you the question: Who was the first human being to sin? Who was the first human being to sin? Eve. That's right. But what does Paul say? He says that sin came into the world through one man. And that's not like man, like a human. He means Adam. So why does Paul say that sin came into the world through one man when it actually first came in through a woman? That's because Eve was not the representative of humanity. Adam was the representative, and is indeed still the representative of humanity. That's a way that God has worked throughout history, is he has representatives of different parts of humanity. What Adam did, accounted for the rest of us. That's, that's the truth. You, from the moment you came to exist, the moment you were conceived... You were already guilty before God. You were already destined to die and deserving of death. You were already destined to a life of sin and corruption. And why is that? And that's because as soon as you came to exist as a human being, you were guilty because of Adam's sin. Why? Because he was your representative. You could think of it like a champion. Maybe you've seen some movie that depicts maybe some uh, Greek or Roman warriors And there's a battle between two armies, and they say, hey, let's not just have everybody kill each other. Instead, let's send out a champion from each side. We'll send out our strongest guy, you send out your strongest guy, and whoever wins, their whole army will win. That's in a sense how it is. It's not that there was a battle, but Adam was our champion. He was the one whose actions were going to decide the fate of the rest of us. We even have this idea of uh, representatives in our world today, too. Think of in, uh, in sports. Uh, does anyone know the backup quarterback for the 49ers this past season? Anyone know? Sam Darnold. Jeff, you know that? I should have said it. <laughs> Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold lost the Super Bowl. But you know what? Sam Darnold didn't play one snap in the Super Bowl. Why, did he, why is he, therefore, a loser of the Super Bowl if he didn't even play? That's because he's a part of a team. What his team does counts for everybody. You know, there's only one Chiefs player who scored that winning touchdown, McColl Hardman, but he's not the only one who won the Super Bowl. Ever, all the Chiefs players win the Super Bowl as soon as their representative, McColl Hardman, scores the touchdown. They all get the points. And the 49ers, all of them, no matter if they were on the field at that time, no matter if they just sat on the bench the whole game, they still lost. Why? Because they were all, in a sense, representing each other. That's the same thing. Adam was our guy forward. He was the one that was on the field. And his actions were going to count for the rest of us. And they did. He sinned, and in that way, all of us have this sin counted against us. And I'm sure what you're thinking of is, this isn't fair. Why am I judged for what this dude who lived thousands of years ago I have no relationship with? Why do I suffer for what he did? And that's because, well, first of all, God said he's your representative. But more than that, he was fairly your representative. He was a a good representative. He was a realistic representative. That is, you would have done just like him. He's made of the same stuff that you are. See, it would be really dumb for you know Sam Darnold to say, well, I didn't lose the Super Bowl. I didn't play quarterback at all during the Super Bowl. Because he'd say, well, you, you couldn't have done better than, than Brock Purdy. He's the starter for a reason. He's better than you. His skill actually represents the skill for the rest of the quarterbacks. He was better than the rest of you. Now that Adam was better than the rest of us, but he's a fitting representative. He's a human just like you are. And I can guarantee you that you in the same state would have made the same decision. He is the representative for us all. He is our father. And so all of us now bear the consequences of how this human acted. And it's fair because we're just like him. His sin was counted as guilt for him and for all of his descendants. Therefore, as soon as his firstborn son Cain was conceived, though Cain had never done anything before, and the moment he was conceived, he was three things. He was guilty. He was already guilty before God for the sin of humanity, the sin that Adam did as their representative. Second, Cain was already, the moment he was conceived, he was corrupt. He was a sinner. When he came out of the womb, Adam and Eve didn't have to say, hey, so something we like to do around our household is eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. We like to break God's rules when he gives it to us. Cain, by nature, was going to break God's rules. No one had to tell Cain to eventually murder his brother Abel. The corruption was there in his heart from the moment of birth. And then three, related to that, Cain, from the moment he was conceived, was fated to commit specific sinful acts that he would be held accountable for. And that was true of Cain, and it's true for every single descendant of Adam and Eve. Every single person in here. From the moment you were conceived, you were guilty before God. You were corrupt, and you were destined for a life of sin. That's why we're sinners, is because that first man, Adam, sinned. And the punishment for his sin was what God had said it would be. God said when he gave the command, the day you eat of the fruit that is on the tree, you shall surely die. And so after they ate, God said to Adam, from dust you came into dust you shall return. This takes us to point number three. What is death? What does that mean when God said you shall surely die? We all know, I hope you all know, uh, it wasn't that Adam ate the fruit and then he was a corpse right away. He continued to live many years. He had kids. God spoke to him. So what did it mean when God said that he would surely die? What does it mean here in verses 12 to 14, where Paul says that uh, death has spread to all men? What does it mean in verse 14 when it says that death reigns? Well, death means more than just that one day your body is going to become a corpse. Of course, that's the case. One day, your stay here on earth will end. Your body will become just a mass of clumps that has to be carried around and burnt or buried in the ground. But Paul means more than that by death. You could see that in a number of places. How about verse 21, though, where it says that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. That is, death is contrasted with righteousness and eternal life, which is more than just living forever. Death has this morality to it. It has this spirituality to it. And indeed, there's two types of death. There's the death of the body and the death of the soul. You as a human being have these two parts. You are a soul and a body combined together in unity. And let's look at each of these. Uh, The death of the body and the death of the soul. The death of the body is what I, I just said. It's when your heart stops pumping, your brain stops working, and you become a corpse. And at that moment, what happens is your soul is separated from your body. It's not that you cease to have consciousness, that you cease to exist. Rather, your soul goes elsewhere and your corpse stays here on earth. And so that is one of the punishments of our sin, is that one day you'll lose everything. Everything you've ever earned in life will be gone just like that. In a moment you don't know, you'll be severed from everyone. Your stay here on earth will be over. Your impact will be over. And that's to come. But even now we feel the consequence of death in our body. Right now in this room, all of your bodies are dying. They are decaying. They are falling apart. Every day you become a little less healthy ultimately. You are inching towards your death. Augustine uh he said these he said this. He said, "No sooner do we begin to live in this dying body than we begin to move ceaselessly towards death." Then a little bit later, Our whole life is nothing but a race towards death, in which no one is allowed to stand still for a little space or to go somewhat more slowly, but all are driven forwards with an impartial movement and with equal rapidity. All of us are flying towards death. And at this age, you don't really feel it. Uh, And I don't feel it as much as Kiyoki feels it. Uh, But I feel it. I'm 28, I think, yeah. And, uh... And I know my body is dying. My body does not work like it was when I was 21, which is a weird thing to say. I know uh, you older guys look at me and think, "You don't know what you're talking about, but it's true. All of us are dying. All of your bodies are slowly losing the functionality God designed them to have. And indeed, every time that your body doesn't work the way it's supposed to, every time you get sick, Every time you break something, be reminded that you are being punished for your sin. You are facing death in your mortal, dying body. That's the death of the body. And yet, even more severe is the death of the soul. And the death of the soul means something quite different than what we think of of the death of the body. For the very reason that your soul is immortal. Immortal your soul will never cease to exist. Your consciousness will never cease to exist. You'll never be annihilated. You'll never go into permanent sleep. You'll always be awake in some sense. So then how could your soul die if it will exist forever? Well, like the body dies when it is separated from the soul, so your soul dies when it is separated from fellowship with God. And since God is the only source of good, to be separated from him is to be separated from goodness. Therefore, the death of the soul is to be separated from God's goodness and brought to pain and suffering, which is its punishment. And this kind of death Adam entered into as soon as he disobeyed God, and it is the state into which all of us were born. All of us are born spiritually dead. All of us are born with a dead soul, meaning that we are separated from God, the source of all life and goodness. The only reason that it can be said truly of you that uh, you're alive when your soul's dead is because your body's alive and your soul gains life through uh, your body that's alive, that exists in God's good world, that is able to find joy and pleasure in the good things that God has made in the world around it but it's simply because your your soul is able to vicariously share in these things cuz your body is alive in this world but one day that will stop your body will cease to live and so your body and your soul will both be dead you'll no longer have any happiness any pleasure any joy this is everybody who does not become a christian you are dead because of adam's sin you're dead in your soul. In the most important way, you are separated from the God who made you and gives you life and peace. And yet your, your sentence has stayed for a little bit because your body is still alive. You're still got to enjoy things. But that's going to end very, very soon. And then you'll have no life left at all. It'll be complete death, complete separation from everything good that God made. You'll continue to exist Uh, But it will be an existence of pain. It will be an existence of sorrow, an existence of suffering. And the wonderful news is that when we become a Christian, our soul is immediately revived, is immediately resurrected, brought back to life. And so all of us in this room who are Christians, we have bodies that are alive but are dying, but our souls are alive. Our souls have fellowship with God. If you want to read more about this later, you can turn to Ezekiel 36. And uh, one note I'd like to make, is uh, something that's a bit interesting, is all bodily death is temporary. The separation of the soul from the body that happens when uh, you kick the can here on earth, that's temporary for every single person, believer or unbeliever. If you're a Christian, heaven is not going to be your existence as a spirit, as just a pure soul. Rather, you'll exist that way for a little bit, but then when Christ returns, he will resurrect your physical body. Whether you're laying in the, the dirt or you've been uh, some dust in the ocean for a long time, you going to, your body's going to be brought back together and reunited with the soul. And all of us who are Christians will live with Christ, who is also in a body, on the new earth, Forever in our physical bodies. It will be much like this existence, except without sin, without death, and therefore without anything sorrowful or painful, but it will be total joy. And on the other hand, every unbeliever will likewise be reunited with their body, but they'll only be reunited to their body to face the second death, eternal death. You can read about this in Revelation 20 and 21 says there, Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Right now, if your soul is dead, if you're not a Christian, you still have pleasure and happiness from the life that your body experiences. But if you die in your unbelieving state, you will be judged by God with an eternal death in which your soul and body will be reunited, but then they will be equally dead. And so you'll have the spiritual death you experience now, separation from God, miserable selfishness, and that will be paired with a body that can feel the physical tortures of fire and sulfur, as Isaiah says, of a worm eating you away. I don't know necessarily if the means of your torture will be fire and sulfur and a worm, but I'll tell you if they're not, it's only because they're worse and we don't have language to describe it. Then how do we come to be this way? Destined for death, dying. Again, it's because we all sin. Death is the just punishment from God for sin. Our selfishness, our evil, it demands Justice and God is meeting out justice every single day here on planet earth as us selfish, rebellious sinners die, are dying as we feel the weight of sin and death. We earned death when our representative Adam sinned, but that's not the only way that you earn death. You also earn death every single day you exist on this earth as a selfish and evil person who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about anybody else, who just uses other people, uses God to serve yourself. Every day you just exist as an evil creature like that. You are earning God's just punishment of death. And every time you feel death, remember, it's only fair. It's only what you deserve. That's what you are. You're an evil being. You deserve to be rejected. And then you earn death, not only because of Adam, not only because of who you are as an evil person, but because you have done so many sins throughout your life. God could pull up a whole catalog of every time you hurt others for yourself, every time you gave up self-control, every time you rejected God. And he could show you, see, for all these crimes, you deserve to die. And so that's why we die. And that's why death feels like a punishment. Hopefully, uh, not many of you in here have experienced the terrible pain of having someone close to you die. But someday you will. And it's the worst pain in life. And when it happens, you'll note how unnatural it feels. You might think this is strange. Everyone dies. It might be someone who you knew was going to die. Maybe it's your grandma who's 80. Maybe it's your mom who's 85. And yet still feel that it's not right. It will feel unnatural. And that's because it's God punishing you. And whether you're a Christian or you're non-Christian, remember that. When you feel the pain of death, let that teach you about sin. Yeah, this is what sin deserves. is this terrible heartbreak. We forget. We ignore the evil and wickedness of our sin. And death is God's unignorable reminder that He opposes us in our pride and our sin. Now, this was a downer of a sermon. That's what these verses were about. But know that if you are a Christian, sin and death, which brings you all the pain and sorrow in your life, it is now being overcome And it will one day be completely overcome. And that's because just as you have had death and sin come upon you because of one person's sin, so now all of us who are Christians receive eternal life and eternal righteousness because of one man's good action, because of one man's sacrifice don't grade against that uh, you are held responsible for what your representative Adam did. Because if you don't like that system, then that means you don't get all the good things that Jesus Christ brings to those whom he represents. And that's what it means to become a Christian. Is that you were previously being represented by Adam's sin and death. And you become a Christian, you swap out your representative. Now you don't get what Adam earned you, now you get what Jesus Christ earned you. And so because of that, we can have complete hope, conviction, and assurance that all sin and death will be finally overcome in our life. We will reap the rewards that Christ has earned for us. And that's what we'll see in a few weeks when I'm back and we look at verses 15 to 21. Let me pray for us.